Good morning, everybody. You can uh, make your way back to your seats. You've got time. People will be meandering and saying hi. Um, if you've got your Bibles as you're coming back, or you can grab your phones. If you go online, we have our digital bulletin that you can go to that'll give you the scriptures, at least some of them this morning. We're going to be continuing our series called In the Lord's Sight, uh, which is in 1 Kings uh, and 2 Chronicles. And if you want to turn in your Bible, you can turn to 1 Kings, starting in chapter 8, put a marker there, fold the page, do something, and then also 2 Chronicles chapter 5. First uh, Kings and Second Chronicles, they overlap. So like if you were to read what we're going to read this morning in First Kings, it's almost identical in Second Chronicles. Okay, so they're kind of mirrored books. But there are some different parts of the story that each book adds. Maybe a little addition of some more information. And then later the books kind of diverge uh, dramatically. Um, and so just keep that in mind, that that's why you'll see us go back and forth between the two. It's why I didn't want to just preach on one. I wanted to preach through all three because the books are the, his, the history of Israel during the time of the kings. And if you remember, we've talked about this, the Lord God didn't want his people to have a king. He said he wanted to be their king. They rejected him and said, no, 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 no. We want to be like everybody else. We feel different, so we want a king. That's how most of us get in trouble as we go, we feel different, I want to be like everybody else, I don't want to be different, I want to have what everybody else has, and so then as a result, we end up in a mess, and basically that's 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles is literally 490 years of mess, mess. There are very few kings that are righteous, there are very few kings that lead well and call people to surrender to God, it is a disaster for 490 years. I mean, that's a long time, we haven't even been a country that long. Does that make sense? And so we're diving back in. We've already looked at the death of King David. We've looked at his son Solomon coming to the throne. We've looked at Solomon asking for wisdom. What should I give you last week? God wanted Solomon to have his heart. Solomon said, I don't know if I have your heart. Solomon asked for wisdom. God said, I will supernaturally give you wisdom. But then he said, but you still need to apply that wisdom. What we're going to find out this week is that Solomon starts out really well, and then he goes sideways really fast, okay? And so this morning, we're going to look at Solomon when he finally does what he does. He builds a temple to God, a temple he was never asked to build. Keep that in mind. David was never asked to build a temple to God. Solomon wasn't either. God allowed them to build a temple. And he said, if you're going to build it, you're going to build it exactly like this. But he didn't say he wanted one. God said, I've been living in a tent and I'm okay with that. Why do you need a temple? I think if more of us would have that conversation with people, it might be helpful. Because we get in trouble like Solomon chasing things. And thinking, well, God blessed it. And he's okay with it, so I should get more of it. And that's exactly what Solomon does. And it ends in his ruin. You see, we think if God doesn't stop us from doing something, then it must be what he wants. And sometimes God's just saying, no, I'm going to teach you a lesson or I'm just being patient with you. And we live in a very pragmatic culture that says, well, if it works, then God must be in it. And if God allows it, then we need to keep doing it. And that is not what scripture says. And the life of Solomon is the perfect picture of that. And so 
Solomon has now been on the throne. He's amassed gold, chariots, all these things that God told him not to do. He told the kings, you're not to have riches and gold and chariots and multiple wives. And Solomon is doing everything that God said kings shouldn't do. And yet, God is still kind and faithful to Solomon and his people. That should give you a little bit of hope. Because you don't do what God wants you to do. And God is patient and kind with you. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences coming for you. And it doesn't mean there aren't consequences coming for your children and your grandchildren. Because that's exactly what happens in Solomon's life and for 490 years. But it does mean in the midst of the mess, we can find hope. And we don't have to live this way. We don't have to do these things. We can learn not doing them. Because we have someone who did it and we can go, dumb, don't do it. Instead of, well, he did it, so I guess I will and God will be good. No, (laughs) that's not why God wrote this down. He wrote it down to say don't. Not, yeah, just go ahead. So let's dive in. 2 Chronicles 5.2. At that time, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the tribal leaders and the ancient and the ancestral leaders of the Israelites before him at Jerusalem in order to bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from the city of David, that is Zion. So Solomon is now finished building the temple. The ark is in another city. The ark is actually in a tent. It's in the tabernacle. And Solomon has built this great temple. Now he has done what is right legally according to the Levitical law to send the priest how they're supposed to be sent, how they're supposed to carry it. They do everything exactly like they're supposed to. And they bring the ark of the Lord. Remember what the ark of the Lord represents. It represents the presence of God. See, the presence of God at this point wasn't With the people, it was with the ark. And the people had to come to the ark for the presence of God. Does that make sense? It's like Noah, right? So we went to the Creation Museum yesterday and went and saw and kind of looked around. And they were talking about one of the cool parts of one of the videos we watched was that Noah went into the ark and it said, God shut the door. So the only way to be saved was through one way, one door shut by God and you had to make a decision. It's the same with Jesus. It's the same with Solomon. The ark is that presence of God that they carry. It is representative of who God is. And and the ark is representative of what's in the ark. We'll see in a minute. He says, nothing was in the ark except two tablets that Moses had put in it at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. So what was inside the ark was the law of God that judged the people. That's why they had to pour blood over the ark to cover the laws they had broken so it wasn't their blood that was shed, but it was a substitutionary lamb that was shed or an animal that was shed on their behalf. Later, Jesus becomes that lamb of God that covers over all the justice we deserve for the laws that we deserve to be punished for. It's a beautiful symbol of what's happening. It goes on and it says, The trumpeters and the singers joined together to praise and thank the Lord with one voice. They raised their voices accompanied by trumpet, cymbal, and musical instruments in praise of the Lord. And look at what they say. For he is good and his faithful love endures forever. This morning I want to talk about forever and if. Forever and if. You see... You and I like the ifs much more than we like the forevers. 
And the reason I know that is because the if allows us to manipulate God. Well, if this works out, and then this, and then if that, and then if, and you know, and then I'm going to do that, and this, and that, and then it's going to, yeah, then I'm, I'm there. You ignore all what the Bible says about all the other stuff so that you can have the if, right? And God allows it. God will actually allow you to chase the if so that you recognize the forever. He'll let it happen. Give you an example. The Bible says the borrower is slave to the lender. How many of you have looked at someone and said, I'm in slavery because I have debt? See, we don't like that terminology. But that's the forever promise that God told us in Scripture. It's not wrong to be in debt necessarily. It's just slavery. So say what it is. You're enslaved. It, to, to think about debt that way and to say, well, but, but if I move this money here and there and then I do and move and I did that, that yeah, yeah, that's exactly how we got into this mess that we're in now. If we just take some money from Social Security and over here and there and then we just print some and you do that and then we're like, what happened? Well, you didn't listen to God. Just, just a simple thing like finances. But, but then you go to relationships or anything else and we don't do relationships like God tells us to do them. And then we end up in a mess. And we're like, well, but if this, and then I do, and this, and that, and then I'll be, yeah. What does God say? What are the forever promises and things that God says? And here's what we will do. We will reinterpret God's forever promises to be if promises before God. You never done this? God, I know you love me. I know, God, that you are good and your faithful love endures forever. But Lord, I want this. And if you give me this, oh, if I will do this and I will do that and I will change and if and if and if. and God's, God is good and his faithful love endures forever. Do you know his word? What he says is good. Have you seen his faithfulness in the word? Do you believe that he loves you? And that even in his discipline that we read about earlier for these children and for us in Hebrews, that it's good and loving? Because we will almost always kick the forever to the curb and go after all the ifs to try to prove something. And God just wants us to sit in the forever and then just say, okay, God, whatever you want, I'm yours. I don't need any ifs because I've got you. I've got the promises of eternity. I've got the promise. I don't need this temple. I don't need any. I've got you. And the children of God and Solomon in general forgets this. And so at this moment, it's a beautiful picture. The nation is unified. They're celebrating. They're carrying the ark. God's presence is with them. It's glorious. And it's only a few years later that the entire nation is in complete disaster. We go on to read, The temple, the Lord's temple, was filled with a cloud. They brought the ark into the temple, and God actually filled this temple he told them not to build. You know what's encouraging about that? You've built all kinds of stuff you shouldn't build, and you've done all kinds of things you shouldn't do, and the Bible says if you accept Jesus Christ, he will still fill you up. He will still come into you, and he will begin to change you and show you the purpose of your life, and he will show you how meaningless all the gold walls and the brick walls and all that stuff are. It's just about the simplicity of the ark of Jesus, who he is, his law, his blood, and that's it. That all the trappings around us don't matter. See, Solomon said, Verse chapter 6, verse 1. Oh, it says, And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
Like they bring the ark in and then all of a sudden the glory of the Lord fills and they're like, we're out of here. Like they can't even be in the, like they're like, yeah. It's so overwhelming to them. The glory and presence of God. They, they're understanding the forever and they're like, if I stay here, it, I'm not gonna, I'm done. And then it says, Solomon, the Lord, he would dwell, said, the Lord said he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built an exalted temple for you, a place for your residence forever. See, the Lord told his people that he dwelled in darkness, but he would bring a great light. That, that, that you can't get to me because of the darkness, but I'm telling you that a great light will come forth from that darkness. It's kind of like a black hole. A black hole is the darkest of dark, whatever it is, but now we know that stars are created from black holes. Like they, they shoot out bursts of light out of these immense gravitational darknesses. It's like, yep, that's what God says about himself. Black hole's the most powerful thing we found in the universe. God's more powerful than that. Makes sense. See, God is trying to say, look, I dwell in this thick darkness, but I've given you an opportunity to know me. I'm still with you. I know that it might be mysterious at times, and you may not know what's going on, but I'm telling you, I am the light. I will bring light into your life. This is what Isaiah 9, 1 says about Jesus, as well as what Jesus was written about Jesus in Matthew 4, 16. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the shadow land of death, light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You see, the purpose of the temple, the purpose of the ark, was to, to show the people their desperate need for the presence of God and their desperate need to repent. That's what Jesus is for. The cross and what he did on the cross and his resurrection are to show us our desperate need because the darkness does that to light. It kills light, but then the light comes back to life and it gives us the hope we need in a world of darkness so that we can live in the light. And, and it's supposed to call us to repent. Repent means, you ready for this? No more ifs, I'm chasing the forever. That's what repent means. It means instead of all these ifs I'm going after, I'm done. I'm chasing what God says is forever, and that's him and his people. That's what I'm going after. All the ifs, not chasing. I'm chasing this. And God can add whatever ifs he wants, but this is where my focus. Repentance means a 180 turn. It means I'm headed this direction, and I go, nope, I'm going this way. That's what repentance is. And that's what the temple, what the ark, all was supposed to do. It was supposed to call the people to repent, to say God is good and his love endures forever and that's what we're gonna trust. That's what we're gonna believe. And I know he's gonna judge. I know he is righteous and I know he can destroy entire worlds, but I am not gonna trust and be afraid of that. I'm gonna trust and be afraid of the fact that I may not know his love and I want that because that's the forever. His justice will end one day. You realize that? God's justice one day is going to disappear. His love is going to go on forever. Like He's going to be done doing justice one day because it's all finished, Revelation says, and then all we're going to have for all of eternity is his love endures forever, and he's good. And we get so focused on the wrong things and the ifs and playing the games, and God's like, look at the forever 
Most people don't serve a church. They're not a part of a church. Why? Because, well, they're sinful and they're awful and, you know, they're all messed up and they're hypocrites. Yep. And you know what? One day they won't be. Those are the only forever people you got in this world. Everybody else is an if person. God's people are the forever people that will live on forever and eternity. You better be connected to them. Because if you're not, you're going to be running with the if people, and it is not going to be good because that's exactly what happens to Solomon. You know, the temple was saying, draw near, be here, repent. Then verse 3 says, the king turned and blessed the entire congregation of Israel while they were standing. He said, may the Lord God of Israel be praised. He spoke directly to my father, David, and he has fulfilled the promise by his power. He said, since the day I brought my people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt, I have not chosen a city to build a temple in among any of the tribes of Israel so that my name would be there. And I have not chosen a man to be ruler over my people, Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem so that my name will be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. See, God said, I don't want to have to choose, but you're forcing the issue. I don't want to have to have a king. I don't want to have to have a place. But if I don't give you some boundaries and draw some lines, you'll do whatever you want. So I'm going to draw a line, Jerusalem and David. And someday God's going to come back, and Jesus is from the line of David. We'll see in a minute. And he comes back and he brings the new Jerusalem to where the old Jerusalem was to fulfill the promise of forever that he's given. See, it wasn't about Solomon. It's not about David. It's not about any, it's about God. It's not about these people. It's about God's forever and ever. And isn't it awesome that God says, if we know him, then he'll make a place for us and he'll give us a new name. The Bible promises that if we make God our forever God, he says, I will guarantee you a place that I'm preparing for you in heaven and I will give you a new name name that only you and I will know, like only us. That's how intimate God wants to be with his people. Now it was the heart of my father David, Solomon goes on to say, to build a temple in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. However, Yahweh said to my father, since it was your desire to build a temple for my name, you have done well to have this desire. Yet you're not the one to build the temple, but your own son, your offspring, will build the temple for my name. So Yahweh has fulfilled what he has promised. No, he hasn't. Solomon has fulfilled what David told him God promised. But Solomon was not believing in a true promise. Solomon was believing in an if promise, not the forever promise. See, if you go back and read what God told Nathan the prophet, God told Nathan the prophet that he would build a temple for his people. He didn't tell David to build a temple for his people. He said he would do it. As a matter of fact, we were discussing this in our staff meeting on Friday. The King James Version, when you go back and look in 2 Samuel in that conversation with Nathan, is actually a much better translation than the modern translations. Here's why. The modern translations, most of them have a prosperity and a Western, you ready for this? A Western superiority bend to it. The King James Version was written under a king. And in the King James when you read what Nathan says, it says, if my son sins, and then he talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. Our Bibles say, when the son sins, I will send a sacrifice. It's subtle, but it's huge, because if you interpret it when, then you say, well, then Solomon had to build the temple, because Jesus couldn't have been a sinner, because he couldn't have ever sinned. If it's interpreted if, it means that Jesus never sinned, 
and he still died for us. You see, you got to be very careful with how we play loose and fast with Scripture to get the interpretation we want so that we can justify the ifs in our life. Now, is God faithful to us even when we do stupid ifs? Oh, my goodness, thank you. Right? <laughs> like, like, if I would have pulled out at that moment, I would have been dead. Praise the Lord that he's got me forever and he's given me a little bit more time now. <laughs> he goes on and he says, so Yahweh has fulfilled what he has promised. Well, kind of, but not fully yet. I, look at what Solomon, now he switches from Yahweh. Look at who the preposition is all the way through the next several verses. So Yahweh, the place of my father's, so Yahweh has fulfilled what he promised. I have taken the place of my father David. And I sit on the throne of Israel as Yahweh promised. I have built the temple for my name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. I have put the ark there where Yahweh's covenant is that he made with the Israelites. Solomon was talking all about God just a minute ago. He was all about Yahweh. And now he's like, and I, and I, and I. Yeah, you did. He's actually telling the truth. He did it. He did it. Yep, you did it, Solomon. You built it. You did it. You put people in slavery to make it happen. You enslaved people that you weren't even supposed to have around. You enslaved them to be your slaves when you're supposed to kick them out of the land. And now they're going to corrupt you. And you, you actually conscripted the people of Israel to actually have to work on this and not pay them a fair wage, which is later what splits the kingdom. We'll see next week under Jeroboam. The kingdom splits because Solomon doesn't pay fair wages to the Israelites. You think that's a new problem? Like, oh, we got this new problem. Nope. Kingdoms have been splitting forever because of it. It's nothing new. He goes on and he says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire congregation of Israel and spread out his hands. For Solomon had made. Notice the Bible says, not God had had Solomon made. No, Solomon made a bronze platform, seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four feet high, and put it on the court. He stood on it, knelt down in front of the entire congregation of Israel. He spread out his hands towards heaven. He said, Lord God of Israel, there's no one like you in heaven or on earth, keeping his gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with their whole heart. You have kept what you've promised to your servant, my father David. You spoke directly to him, and you have fulfilled your promise by your power as it is today. We love putting on big shows. Right? And politicians love nothing more than to put on big shows and raise their hands and point and look at me and look at what we build and I'm going to build this for you and this is going to be great. This is the same stuff we see today. It's the same stuff you do. You invite people over. You don't talk about all the spiritual stuff you built in your house. You're like, yep, I built that chimney. I did that. I went there. I did that. Oh, you did. Who gave you the strength to know how to do that? God, yeah. God did. See, there's nothing that offends us more than somebody to say, you didn't build that. We had a president who said that. Everybody's really offended. Because you didn't. It's God's gracious mercy that we've got anything, that the world doesn't fly apart and we don't kill each other. That we haven't nuked one another and ended our world by fire is a miracle. It has been close a few times and we're close again. It is only by the gracious hand of God that we're alive, that we walk, that we breathe, that we have anything. Don't forget that. He goes on and he says this. Well, actually, Philippians says this. He says, now I want you to know, brothers, that what happened to me has actually resulted in the advancement of the gospel. 
So here's Solomon, right? It looks like he's worshiping God, he's praising God, and you know there's this selfish motive because he was just talking about all the eyes, right? Here's what Paul says when you run into this in our culture with Christianity. He says, you know what happened to me, but it's actually advanced the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is the cause of Christ. Most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. These do so out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerity, sincerity, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. He's like, is Solomon doing this for the right reason or the wrong reason? Yes, both. Well, you can't do both at the same time. Oh, yes, you can. All of you got married, and when you got married, you did not have, those of you who are married, you did not have totally pure motives when you got married, let's just be honest. And you have discovered that if you've been married any length of time, you've discovered that you did not have pure motives. You stood at the altar if you got married in a Christian wedding, and you said, oh, I will be the husband who lays down his life like Christ did the church. And then she says, could you do the dishes? No. The woman will say, this is my body. I am, I am my husband's. I respect him. I'm to give myself to him. And the husband like leans over. Hey, honey, how you doing? No. I mean, it's got like a week on it and it's already happening. You know what I mean? I mean, this, so Paul's like, yeah, this is how it works. Like, but here's what Paul says, and we have to remember, with the temple of Solomon and with our own lives, and today he says, what does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. What does it matter? We're still worshiping God. Yeah, I built this big altar we're not supposed to have, and we got all this gold, but at least we're not worshiping some other God. That doesn't make it all right, but goodness sakes, I mean, it's tainted, I know, but... And that's the way God is. God is so much. He will take whatever faith we're willing to bring in. Faith of a mustard seed. That's our God. He will come and be like, if you just, I just need a little faith, just a tiny bit of faith. Just some real faith. Just, just a little. And I will multiply that. And then we stand in our heart and say, I'm not going to trust you for nothing. Just like we do in relationships. And Solomon's no different. Then he says, just in every way, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, look at this, Paul says, I rejoice. So should I rejoice over this king who's standing on a broad's altar, who's made gold chariots, done all this stuff, he's married to multiple women, should I allow him to work? Should I even respect him? Yeah. Because it's not about Solomon. It's about the guy in the ark. It's the ark. It's the presence of God. It's not Solomon. For some reason, God's raised up Solomon. He's allowed this to happen. And I got to just deal with it. Like we've had back-to-back presidents that most of us are going, how? Why? Is, is there no one better in the country to run our country? Like do we not have any other better option? I don't care if you're left or right. It doesn't matter. They, neither of them have been very good. And you could go, well, they're, yeah. no, they're both just, yeah. Really, this is the best we've got to offer goes on and he says, because I know this, Paul says, this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the spirit of Jesus Christ. I know that the ark's in there and I know that the sacrifices we make and the presence of God will lead to deliverance of me, 
my sons, my grandsons, and the future generations. It ain't about Solomon. It ain't about this temple. It's about the guy this represents. And I'm not afraid to talk about it. We shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't have all this. And I'm not afraid to talk about it, but I'm still going to be faithful to give the offerings and to do what God has asked me to do. And then he says, look at this. My eager expectation is hope is that I will, be, I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether life or death. I, I just... I just want to be highly honored. I just want to highly honor God regardless of what the consequences are. And see, Solomon forgot that. God, Solomon wanted to honor God for the benefits. 16 goes on, says, Therefore, Lord God of Israel, keep what you promised to your servant, my father David. You will never fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons guard their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, Lord God of Israel, please confirm what you've promised to your servant David. You see, Solomon says, God, these are promises. These are forever promises that you made because you chose my father, David, and you made these forever promises to him. And so I'm asking you now, Lord, to confirm your promises. And even in the midst of the corruption and mess, God continues to keep confirming his promises. And then one day, God brings the ultimate confirmation of the promise. You ready for this? Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23. And Matthew 1.1. These are the genealogies of Jesus Christ. In other words, who was his dad? Who was his dad? Who was his dad? Here's what it says. As Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years old, and he was thought to be the son of Nathan, son of David. See, this lineage in Luke traces the lineage from King David through Adam, through Bathsheba's and Mary's bloodline. You see, Jesus' bloodline was not Solomon's bloodline. It was Nathan's bloodline. Nathan was the younger brother to Solomon, born of Bathsheba. However, in Matthew's gospel, the historical record of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, where it's traced from Abraham to Jesus, then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. God even says Bathsheba wasn't Solomon's wife. He was Uriah's wife. That's how consistent God is in his forever promises. In his genealogy, he won't even acknowledge David's marriage to Bathsheba. He goes, that wasn't legal. It wasn't right. That was Uriah's wife. And Solomon in this lineage is the legal right because Abraham had the land and the legal right. So guess what? Jesus was adopted legally by who? Joseph of Uriah of Bathsheba, and he was the bloodline of Nathan of Bathsheba, which means God uses the broken woman who was used by a king to bring redemption legally and blood forever and ever. And God says, that's what I do with messes. You don't think God can use your mess? You don't think that the mess you're making and you may make like Solomon, God can't turn around for good? Man, wake up. He is good and his faithful love endures forever. That doesn't give us excuses to do this stuff. We should look at this and go, I don't want to do that. I don't want to someday have my name written and say, yeah, that wasn't your wife. I don't want to have these things written about me. It's beautiful what God does in the midst of our mess. He goes on, it says, but God will indeed live on earth. He says, but will God indeed live on earth with man? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less the temple I have built. Finally, Solomon's like, okay, 
I said all this stuff, but I also realized that God really didn't live on earth, and this temple really isn't all there is. Praise God, Solomon was honest, right? And then he goes on and he says, listen to your servant's prayer and your petition, my God, Lord, my God, so that you may hear the cry and prayer that your servant prays before you, so that your eyes watch over this temple day and night towards the place where you said you would put your name so that you may hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. It's not about the temple, it's about the place. Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem that's going to come someday. This is going to be a temporary temple built by human hands. There's going to be a permanent temple that comes someday. A permanent dwelling with God. And Solomon says, but will God even indeed live on the earth? Well, I'm glad Solomon asked. Because God answers for us in Revelation, Solomon's incredible question. Here's what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the, new, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne say, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. Man, if that doesn't get you fired up, I don't know what is. He just answered all of Solomon's problems. Solomon, you messed everything up. You built a temple you're not supposed to build. You know, like all this stuff. And he says, and Solomon's like, I don't even know if God's going to be with us. And God's like, Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, I will. It's so beautiful. Then he goes on and he says, in John, Jesus said, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, also believe in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I am actually going to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know where I'm going. Lord Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, "Uh, Thomas, um, I am Yahweh right here. That's what I am means. Yahweh is right here. Yahweh is the way. Yahweh is the truth. Yahweh is life. Not me, Jesus. I'm just Jesus. There you go. I am the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't get to God except through the ark. You can't get to God except through the blood, except through the law, except through what it represents. There's no other way than to enter the holy of holies by the blood of the slain. There's no other way. He's like, haven't I told you this, Thomas? Don't you know this? I am Yahweh. I am with you. I am present. And like what do you, in other words, Thomas, what else are you looking for? I'm the forever, and you're still looking at, well, if and if, and well, if you go over here, do we go if, if, if? Hello, I'm right in front of you. He goes on and says this, Second Chronicles, hear the petitions of your servant, and may your people Israel, which they pray towards this place, may you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. See, he even recognizes that God isn't in the temple, that he, this is just a, a substitute for the ultimate presence of God. May you hear and forgive, Solomon says. If a man sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath, and he comes to take an oath before your altar in this temple, may you hear in heaven and act. Not that the temple and the oath is what saves me, but that the fact that we're doing this and saying you have to be the one that comes from heaven to save us. 
It's not us getting to heaven. It's not us doing things to be right with you. It's you making us right and coming to us. And then he says, you judge your servants, condemning the wicked man by bringing what he has done on his own head and providing justice for the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. You see, we've been made righteous in Jesus Christ. Hebrews says this, For the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far and separating of the soul and spirit, joints and merits, able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who enters into the Holy of Holies where the ark is to offer the blood, that's the high priest, who has passed through the heavens... It's not an earthly high priest that's trying to get to heaven. This is a high priest that came from heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, look at this, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. At the end of Solomon's life, after he's messed everything else up, he writes Ecclesiastes, and at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says what? We, we just went through it last week. He says, fear God and obey his commands. This is for all eternity because he's going to come and judge. In other words, Solomon finally, at the end of his life, did business with God and said, I'm done. I just want to be fearful of you and awe of you and wonder of you. I want to do what you tell me to do. And I have so messed this all up and I know judgment's coming and I'm warning the nation that judgment's coming for them. Whew. That's, that's Solomon approaching at the end of his life. God, believing that God is good. His love endures forever. It's the forever, not the if. He goes on to say, if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and they return to you and praise your name and they pray and plead for mercy before you in this temple, may you hear in heaven, forgive the sin of your people Israel. May you restore them to the land and give them their ancestors that you gave their ancestors. When the skies are shut and there's no rain because we've sinned against you and they pray towards this place and praise your name and they turn, repent from their sins because they've, they are afflicting them may you hear in heaven and forgive the earthly sin of your servants and your people Israel so that you may teach them the good way they should walk in the good and forever love way not the temporary love the evil love that we give one another May you send rain on your land that you gave your people for an inheritance. When there is a famine on the earth, when there is pestilence, when there is blight, mildew, locust, or grasshopper, when the enemy besieges them in the region of their fortified cities, when there is any plague or illness, whatever prayer or petition anyone from your people might have, each man knowing his own affliction and suffering and spreading out his hands towards this temple, may you hear in heaven your dwelling place and may you forgive and repay the man according to all his ways since you know his heart for you alone know the human heart. What a beautiful prayer of Solomon here. He looks and he says, it's all coming. You're not going to get away from the pestilence, the grasshoppers, and the mess. It's coming for you. It's coming for me. It doesn't go away. And then he says, look at this. He goes, but when we turn to you, wait, may we hear from heaven and be reminded that it's about heaven, not the stuff we have here. And when you forgive, 
Yes, we can be forgiven, but we're still going to have to deal with the ways that we've created and the mess it leaves. Then he says, so that you may fear, so that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days they live in the land you, you gave your ancestors, even for the foreigner. You might want to underline that because I'm pretty sure that most of you in here aren't Jewish or Israelite. Even for the foreigner. That's you. That's me. He says, who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land. Why? Why did we decide to believe in this God of Israel, Yahweh, the Yahweh who saves? Well, because his name is great and his hand is mighty and he outstretched his arms on the cross for us. And when he comes and we pray to the temple, which is Jesus's body, his presence, because his presence on the cross is what we pray to. It's him, not the temple, not the ark, because the ark is gone, because Jesus has come. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place and do all the foreigner asks you. Then all the people of the earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do and know that this temple I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to fight against their enemies wherever you send them and they pray to you in the direction of the city you've chosen a temple I built for your name, may you hear their prayer and petition in heaven and uphold their cause. Listen, where are your prayers focused on? Solomon's prayers are all focused on the place where God dwells. Where are your prayers focused? We should be focusing our prayers on the place God dwells. That's heaven itself and the place we're going to dwell forever, which is heaven. And then he says, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. That's you. That's me. Nobody. Right, And you are angry with them and you hand them over to the enemy and your captors deport them to a distant nearby country. They are at complete peace. They are at complete wealth. And Solomon is saying, this is, getting, this is gonna happen. Like, he's praying prophetically here. He's saying, you know, when all this happens, wait a minute, we don't want that to happen. You mean if it happens, Solomon? No, when it happens. Because it's gonna happen. Because you're idiots and I'm an idiot. And God can't just let idiots keep going. He's gotta stop it. So that he can show people that we're all idiots and he's awesome. Then he goes on, he says, And when they come to their senses in the land where they were deported and repent. I don't want to repent in the land I'm deported. I want to repent in my condo on the beach. Because if I'm deported in a land, it means I'm a slave working my tail off. I got no Sabbath. I got nothing. I don't want to repent. I want to be like, God, if you do something and get me out of this slavery and give me my Sabbath back and you do all, oh, well, then, then we'll have a conversation, God. Versus just recognizing I'm in this mess because I live in a broken world and a mess that's been created for me and I actually participate and do the mess myself. And so you know what? Yeah, Lord, I've come to my senses. I've been deported. I should have been deported. I'm here illegally. I didn't get my seven year to work, right? And then he says, and repent and petition their captives, saying, look at this. We've sinned and done wrong, and we've been wicked. What? Yeah, you go to your master, your slave owners, and you say, hey, man, I've just not been working as a good slave, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm not doing that. No, no, God, if you deliver me, then I'll have that kind of attitude, but not before. You see, we have modern slavery that's ruined this for us, but... If we're really serious, then we'll take this kind of stuff seriously. Say, look, it's not about this earth. It's about us representing God and the fact that we are slaves to him. And I should enslave no man. And I should be enslaved to no man. 
But if I'm enslaved to God, then I place myself under every man so that they might know God. Then he goes on and he says, And when they returned to you with their whole mind and heart in the land of their captivity, they were taken captive. And when they pray in the direction of their land that you gave their ancestors and the city you've chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name, may you hear their prayer and petition in heaven, your dwelling place and uphold their cause. May you forgive your people who sinned against you. Now, my God, please let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers of this place. And that should be our prayer when we pray to heaven and ask God, the new Jerusalem's coming, the new place is coming. Our prayers aren't focused on a building like Solomon's. That's gone. It's done. God showed us that that's not fully what we're asking for. He goes on and says, when Solomon finished praying, fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Boy, that was a sight. By the way, that never happened in Herod's temple in the New Testament. When King Herod built a temple for the Israelites, they run to know why that never happened. There was no ark in King Herod's temple. They lost the ark. The people lost the ark of God. They lost the presence of God. And so when King Herod built his temple, the presence of God wasn't even in there. And yet God, when Jesus died, he still ripped the, the foot-thick veil in two to say, hey, I'm not in there anymore. And to expose, you ready for this? The reason he ripped it in two was to expose that your leaders have been lying to you. The presence of God is not in the temple. Your Pharisees and your Sadducees are liars. They say Herod built this and this is the place of worship. They're lying to you. The presence of God is not in this temple. It's never been here. It's been with me, Jesus says. And he goes on, he says, the priests were not able to enter the Lord's temple because the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And all the Israelites were watching when the fire descended and the glory of the Lord came on the temple. They bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshiped and praised God for he is good and his faithful love endures forever. Anytime you see a person surrender their life to Jesus Christ, this should be your response. It should cause you to just fall down and be like, the presence of God just went into that person. Oh, that's amazing. Because they're a mess. They're a complete disaster. They look good on the outside, but they're... It's all gold and beautiful, but yeah, inside it's dirty and nasty. Birds fly in and these... But God still filled them. And you should say that too. Second Chronicles, Solomon finished the Lord's temple in the royal palace. Everything it had entered Solomon's heart to do for the Lord's temple and for his own palace succeeded. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night. This is beautiful. Everything succeeded. Everything's gone great. And you're like, wow, this is great. Let's just keep this going, right? God's like, I, I didn't do this because you've been doing things right. I'm doing this so that I can give you a warning. You see, the reason God comes into our life is not to then say, you're blessed. Have whatever life you want. Because when you read Matthew, Jesus says, if you truly understand blessing, you understand blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Like, blessed are those who are hungry. That's not blessing. That sounds like not blessing. That sounds like stuff I don't want. I, I don't want to be hungry. I mean, I want to be, have food and be able to choose ice cream over all the good food. He goes on and he says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night. He's giving him a warning. 
Like in God's love, he's like, okay, things are going well. And when things go well, people turn the other way. They forget me. Every time things go well for God's people, all the way through scripture, they forget God, they get prideful. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've built. And then they crash every time in the Bible. It's almost every time. It may not be in a year. It may not be in 10 years, but it it comes. Look what he says. He came to Solomon at night. He said, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If you cry out to God with the messy garbage temple that you've built in your life that's sitting in that chair, okay? God says, I've heard your prayer of repentance to me. I've heard that you want to ask me, Jesus, into your life. And you know what? I'll take it. Thank you. If I close the sky so there's no rain, if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, not seek my temple. Notice the difference? Seek my face. I don't want to see the face of God because when Moses saw the face of God, he didn't even see the face of God. He saw the backside of God and his face glowed and he was like a, like a, he was like a, lightning bug like I don't know that I want that no no no. seek my face he says and then look he says and turn from their evil ways I will hear not from this temple not from this place I'll hear from heaven itself and I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal the land the healing for our land may not come in our lifetime he may not heal the land called the United States of America but he will forever heal the earth someday forever. The land will be healed. There will be no death, no crying. We just read it. And then God goes on to say, my eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to the prayer from this place. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary and that the spirit of God, oh, that's sorry, that's, that's typo, my bad. And he says, I've now chosen and con-. so listen, he's chosen and consecrated this temple. That's you, that's me, when we don't deserve it. First Corinthians says this, don't you know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. But this body's awful. Like this body, when I got on the scale today, I found out this body decided to put on five pounds. I'm not sure how this body did that. I mean, I was just living life, and I got on the scale this morning, and they said, hello. I'm like, so I started thinking about how that happened, and I'm like, it's all God's fault, right? And other people that fed me and put food in front of me, it's not my fault, totally my fault. And then it says, don't you know that it's a sanctuary you were bought? Therefore, glorify God. And listen, the plural body is there is used. Paul is writing the Corinthian church. He's not talking about your specific body. He's saying, therefore, glorify God in your bodies, the church. Hold one another accountable. Look at what you're doing and warn one another. God is warning Solomon at this point. Hey, and then he says, and what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of a living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. 
1 Corinthians goes on to say in chapter 3, it says, Don't you yourselves know that you're God's sanctuary and the Spirit of God lives in you? No one should deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise are meaningless. Who would we use the words wise and meaningless of a lot in the Bible? Oh, Solomon. The wisest man in the world who wrote the most meaningless book ever written in Ecclesiastes. And that's exactly what God is showing of Solomon now. He's saying, I gave him this wisdom, I gave him all this stuff, but it's meaningless if it ain't about me. And we can be in the same boat. And Paul says, look, God actually uses the wisdom of Solomon to show us all the foolish things we shouldn't chase. Here's the wisest man in the world. You cannot be wiser than this guy. And I made him a fool so that you will actually become a fool knowing that you can never become that wise, so you better trust me. And then we go chase the ifs of wisdom. Well, if I do that, I do this, and if, and if, and I could do, and I can manage this, and I put that over there, you know, like we're running like rats. God's like, just trust me, I'm right here. Goes on and says, as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, so that's the forever covenant God just gave, right? Now he says, but as for you, Solomon, if you walk as David walked, doing everything I've commanded, and if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish your royal throne as I promised your father David. You will never fail to have a man ruling in Israel. However, if you turn away and abandon my statutes and my commands that I've set before you, and if you go to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel. No, 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 just uproot Solomon. I, I don't want to be uprooted with Solomon. He's a moron. I, I, I'm not with Solomon, right? No, no, no. If your leaders don't lead you and they don't call you to repentance, then you'll follow your leader and you're all going to be uprooted. And if you don't call it out, then you're going to be uprooted with all of them. But if I call it out, they're going to uproot me. Better option. Better option. And then he says, however, if you turn and abandon, I will uproot Israel. The soil I gave them and the temple I've sacrificed for my name, I will banish from my presence, which God has done, and it's been banished for the last 2,000 years. There's been no temple in Jerusalem for 2,000 years because the temple came and he was Jesus. And he put the temple in our hearts. And then he says, I will make an object of scorn and ridicule among all the peoples as for this temple which was exalted. And today, Israel's temple has a foreign God sitting on top of it. Allah, Islam, the third holiest city and the dome on the rock. And it is a despicable sight. It goes on, it says, if anyone who passes by will be appalled and will say, what did the Lord do to this land and to this temple? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord of their God of the ancestors who brought them out of the land of Egypt, they've clung to their other gods and worshiped and served them. Because of this, he has brought ruin on all of them. And that's exactly what's happened to the Israelites. But for those who know him, he's given us a new temple and a new heaven and a new earth that's coming. First Kings goes on to say in 11, 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord commanded. 
Solomon forgot about the forever and he chased the ifs. That's what he did. He just forgot forever and started chasing if and if and if and moving around. Chase forever. And he forgot. So what specifically caused God to say this? Glad you asked. 2 Chronicles 9. The queen of Sheba heard Solomon's fame, so she came to test Solomon with difficult questions at Jerusalem with a very large entourage with camels bearing spices and gold and precious stones. She came to Solomon and spoke with him about everything that was on her mind. So Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too difficult for Solomon to explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba observed, there is nothing a man loves more than a woman who thinks he's smart. And there is nothing that will corrupt a man quicker than spending time with a woman who tells him what he wants to hear and showers him with stuff he's not. That's how every affair happens. How every affair happens. And Solomon has fallen into the trap. And when the Queen of Sheba looked at all that Solomon had, right, This is what Samuel says. The Lord said to Samuel, don't look at the appearance of her stature because I've rejected him. Man does not look at what the Lord sees for man looks what is visible, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, there's a stat I've shared before, but do you know what percentage of men are above 5'10", make 70,000 or more and aren't obese in the United States? What percentage of men are above 5'10", make more than $70,000 and are not obese? in the United States? 1.5%. Women and men, you got to start looking for the things of God and stop looking for the things of this world because you're not going to find it. Be careful. And if you keep chasing the idol and the appearance, you're going to be miserable, I promise. Solomon chased it and watch what happens. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. He wasn't even supposed to marry Pharaoh's daughter because she's a foreigner and she's Egyptian, which God said don't do. He had Moabite women, Ammonite women, Edomite, Assyrian, and Hittite women. These are all the nations God told to get rid of in Israel and have no relationship with because of their wickedness. From the nations that the Lord had told the Israelites about, don't intermarry with them and don't, do not marry, you must not intermarry with them because they will turn you away from me to their gods. Solomon was deeply attached to these women and he loved them. What a good husband. What a great man. I mean, I just want a man who will be deeply attached to me. He just be, oh, that's what I'm looking for is someone who's deeply attached to me. I hope you find someone that's deeply attached to God and his church. Because if you find someone that's deeply attached to God and his body, the church, because they recognize I'm a little temple and we're a bigger temple, and before I start building my own temple, I better get this temple and this temple right, you'll be in much better shape. It says Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. When Solomon was old, his wives seduced him to follow other gods. He was not completely devoted to Yahweh, as God, as his father David had been. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh and the detestable idols of Moab and for Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites on the hill across from Jerusalem. You don't think you're capable of that? Oh, you are. You are fully capable of this. 
Because when you start getting old and cynical and things aren't working out well, and whether that means old at 25 or 35 or 45, you start going, maybe I made, ooh, maybe I did and should, and now if and after and if. And you forget the forever oaths and covenants and promises you made. And that's what Solomon forgot. And it says, he did the same for all his foreign wives who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to their gods. Then the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and I'll give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime because of your father, David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Oh, the pain of that. You wonder why Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. Because this was what Solomon was living with. And he said, there is no hope if you don't fear God, obey his commands, and teach others to do the same. Because judgment will come for you because it came for me. He goes on and says this, yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him, God says. I will give one tribe to your son because of my servant David and because of Jerusalem that I chose. All the ifs I told you about, Solomon, that you didn't obey and now it's happening to you, all those ifs that you chased, yeah, there's going to have to be a payment for that. But I'm actually going to keep one tribe around, and you want to know why? Because that tribe's going to make the payment. Watch. Revelation 5.4, and I cried, and I cried, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. I'm not worthy of God. You're not worthy of God. None of us are worthy. Not Solomon and his wealth. No one. The scroll that contained the truths and the names of people. Then one of the elders said to me, stop crying. Look, the lion from the tribe of... Guess which tribe God spared? The root of David has been victorious, so he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb. That's the temple. That's the Passover lamb standing between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders. He's standing on our behalf to keep the wrath of God back so that more can be saved. And he is standing there on your behalf and my behalf. See, this is what God does. He is completely honest. He is completely truthful. He he meets us where we are. He walks us through all of this and then he buys it all back and fixes all of it and we are left going, well, we didn't know what the heck we were doing. And he goes, exactly. Will you trust me forever? Quit chasing the ifs. Look to me. Trust me. Take the next step of faith. And you know what? If you messed up a bunch of ifs, God's looking at you and saying, You you can get back on forever. If my people who are called by my name will just turn, repent, seek my face, I will hear from heaven itself and I will meet with you, Jesus says, and I'll change you. It doesn't mean things are going to get better on this earth, but it does mean things will be better forever for you and for me and for those that come after us. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this word. Thank you for the promises that you give us forever. Lord, I pray for many of us in this room who have done a lot of ifs. 
And we play the if game with you. Lord, I pray we'd stop playing the if game. I just pray we would look at your word that's been given to us. It is your truths forever and live by them. Lord, I thank you for how you give us these stories and how you show us people's hearts on display and you call out truth. You, you call sin, sin. You, you don't hide it. You don't try to cover it up. You just call it out and then you tell us how you deal with it and pay for it. So Lord, I pray today that if there's anyone here who has never bowed to you, like we see the people bowing to you in your presence in the Old Testament and we see people in the New Testament bowing and in Revelation bowing to you, I pray today would be the day that they surrender and they realize that you are the Savior of the world, that you came from heaven to earth to open up the Holy of Holies so that your presence would no longer be there but actually would enter our very hearts and change us. And Lord, I thank you for the body of Christ that you give us, the church, not just this church, but your global church that honors you, that glorifies you, that that gets rid of the idols and seeks you. And Lord, we pray for their blessing. And so Lord, I pray that you would bring people to join with you, to surrender to you and to give their lives like you gave your life to your bride, the church. And Lord, may we know, may we know with full confidence that our God is good and his faithful love endures forever. Amen.